What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Colin and Samir Show and this episode of Creator Support. Today in the show, we're going to be sharing our reaction to TikTok monetizing via revenue share, how to price yourself when someone wants to license your content, how to find your niche, and we're going to answer what are the roles in a creator business? Yeah, we're actually going to dive deep into those roles and really describe them. Yeah, what do creators hire for? What do mm-hmm. these people do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All that and more in this episode of Creator Support. Colin and I just got back from New York City, so we'll also talk about our trip there. Now, if you've been enjoying the show, if you could review the show, that would be awesome on whatever platform you listen to, but specifically on Spotify. We're getting now really close to 2,000 reviews, Colin. Amazing. 2,000 reviews. That's awesome. And if you want to submit a question for our Creator Support series, you can do that either on our subreddit, r slash Colin and Samir, or in the published press. All right. Let's get into it. Okay, one thing that I'm so excited about is the sheer quantity of creator support website pitches we got in the last week. Yeah, thank you so much to everyone. That was amazing. It's out of control. We got another one this morning. It's like, holy smokes, this is a lot. Uh, and what's what's really cool to me, the thing I was thinking about a lot on the plane ride back from New York yesterday was just, wow, we have such a creative community who's listening to the show. Like the variety of designs, the variety of ideas, like the amount of inbound creativity we're getting is just, for me, it, it, it really helps contextualize who's in the audience and how creative all of you guys are. Yeah, there were pitches that came to us from all over the world, some of which came from individuals, some of which came from agencies. Yeah. I mean, really cool Crazy. to see who is in our community. So thank you so yeah. much to everyone who sent us a pitch. Yeah, it's awesome. We're going to we're going to dig in and like really figure out what we want to do with the creator support brand over the next year, but you know, we're we're exploring live streaming. We want to, you know, I think the most interesting and compelling website pitch had essentially like an upvoting style system for questions, which I loved. That's something we talked about. Maybe we'll take this show on the road, maybe we'll go on tour. Yeah, creator support on tour. Go to colleges and companies across the world. Creator support on ice. Yes. You know, you and I on ice skates. I can skate. Yeah. So Colin and I, over the past week, we were in New York City. We just got back last night and um, we were in New York for a hosting gig with YouTube. So it's advertising week in New York, which is essentially, you know, a bunch of advertisers get together. They go to different events put on by companies that are publishers or platforms like YouTube, um, kind of explaining what the future of the platforms look like so that advertisers have more confidence in spending money. And we were very involved co-hosting YouTube's Advertising Week events. So there's two events, a morning show where we talked all about, you know, how users are engaging with YouTube, and then an evening concert with YouTube music that was headlined by Diddy, which was dope. Yeah, kind of (laughs) surreal. Super surreal, yeah. So in the morning show, we got to talk about, you know, short form vertical ads and how advertising is coming to shorts. Um, you know, a big quote that was pulled that put on Twitter was something that, that you said called, but not your original quote, but you said that there is 1.5 billion logged in users to YouTube shorts that are covering 30 billion views a day. That's how big YouTube shorts is right now. Um, and so kind of understanding from an advertising perspective, as the revenue share model rolls out, as advertising is coming to shorts, pitching to advertisers how they should make good ads. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of why you and I were on stage. Mm-hmm. There was a time when we're just straight up giving brands advice for how they should think about advertising on YouTube and how, you know, if they want to advertise in shorts in this new short form feed, 
how should they think about that? And it was, you know, make sure to have a good hook, make yeah. sure to identify very quickly who your audience is mm -hmm. so that they know it's for them. And another thing we said was just watch more YouTube, be a student of the platform. Right? I think that's like the end all be all for me. If you're a brand, a marketer, a platform, if you have interest in creating content on YouTube, creating advertising on YouTube, you have to watch YouTube. You have to get inside the mind of someone who clicks on a YouTube video. And if you're advertising on TikTok or Instagram, you have to watch TikTok or Instagram because yeah. it's going to be different, right? It seems it makes sense to us, but sometimes to marketers, it doesn't always translate. You know, you can tell, we can tell as consumers when we see an ad on TikTok and it feels totally out of place, mm -hmm. right? I think the future of advertising specifically on YouTube is going to be creators in those ads. So, you know, for example, if there's a Nestle ad before a Colin and Samir video, if that's Eric in the ad, everyone who's watching, it's going to feel much more native. It's like, oh, I just watched a little Eric video before watching a Colin and Samir video. Or it's Colin and Samir, you know, us talking about a music licensing business before you watch, uh, you know, one of Mr. Beast's videos. It's going to feel more native and we're going to produce it such that it fits into YouTube. Yeah, because right now, a lot of what you're seeing on YouTube in terms of pre-roll ads are ads that could play on TV. Yeah. And that's easier for marketers because it's like, hey, you know, we made this asset. Let's just run it on YouTube too. But the cost of making that asset, I think it should be flipped and saying, hey, Colin and Samir are going to go grab a camera and vlog and talk about how great, you know, DoorDash is, let's say, and why they use DoorDash while they're editing videos or why they use DoorDash to, to, to you know, order food. And then that plays on TV. That's more interesting. Mm -hmm. That's a purple cow. We can't get into that. We can't get into that. All right, all right. That's part of our episode next week uh, on YouTube. So stay tuned for that. We are going to get into some creator support questions um, today. We pulled some questions from Reddit as well as from the creator support form through our newsletter, The Published Press. While we're talking about monetizing content and advertising, let me just talk a little bit about TikTok Pulse and TikTok's announcement to uh, opening up revenue sharing with creators through Pulse. So from what I understand, they, TikTok actually wanted to get this announcement out a lot earlier. Yeah. Because now YouTube has kind of beat them to this announcement, yep. right, of revenue sharing on short form content. This now feels reactionary. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. they were planning on it. You can't just put this out, you know, out of the blue. I'm sure it's something they were planning on. But from a timing perspective, they're now late to the game. Absolutely. Yeah. So basically, here's how it works. There's something interesting that I fully can't understand that's uh, you have to be in the top 4% of creators. I guess that, that, that what that means is like you have to at least have 100,000 followers and have posted at least five videos within the last 30 days and be 18 years old to start earning revenue. Creators who meet all that criteria will earn 50% of the revenue from ads placed adjacent to their videos. Um, so TikTok had launched Pulse before. This isn't their first like announcement of it, but this is kind of like how the requirements work. So it says TikTok previously said Pulse will involve contextual advertisement, meaning that it aims to put sports ads on sports videos, beauty ads on beauty videos, and so on. By giving creators 50% of the ad revenue from Pulse, TikTok is slightly edging out YouTube Shorts, who's giving 45%. So at a high level, I think YouTube announcing the Shorts revenue share, I think everyone knows that to compete, it's going to have to be a revenue share on short form content. But I don't think that neither YouTube or TikTok really understands yet how that's going to be attributed or how it's going to work, you know, fully. 
they have ideas like, you know, for YouTube, it goes into a, a pool and it's split between creators on TikTok. What they're saying is that, you know, it sounds like it's going to be more genre specific and maybe it's like genre pools on YouTube. It's country pools. Like I, I think we won't know until people actually start making money from these revenue shares. And I think what creators need to understand is that this is a brand new product for both of these companies. And it's a brand new product for advertisers, yeah. the people that are actually spending the money that's going to get doled out to creators. Yep. And they have to see success metrics. They have to put money here, find out that it works before they start doubling down. I'm going to say this to creators who are, who have gotten really good at making short form content, but maybe aren't <clears throat> making a ton of money through advertising. Pitch yourself as someone who can make ads for these companies. Think about the concept that every company right now needs to figure out how to make TikToks or shorts that go into a vertical feed and they don't know how to do it. They're going to look for someone who's natively good at that. So if you're looking for like a creative business, you can become someone who makes advertising for these companies. So that, that, that's what I want to open up over on like the concept of the creator economy can be expanded beyond just the traditional nature of us becoming publishers and distributors of saying, we make content, you advertise on our content. You can also go help the companies make those advertisements. That's where we started our career. And it's a great way to get creative work, work with brands, solve storytelling problems. So that, I just want to offer that, like that opportunity is on the table right now if you're a creator. All right, should we get into our first question? This is a very specific question yeah. from our Reddit. It says, ABC wants to license my YouTube footage. I have no idea what I'm doing. Please help. Hoping that this is the right crowd to ask this question to. I've done a bunch of research and I still haven't figured out quite where to start with this. ABC and their production company have reached out and are interested in licensing one of my YouTube videos. They're creating an episode of television that's in its fourth season and want to use my drone footage as establishing shots. The type of licensing they want is all media worldwide in perpetuity, plus in-context advertising and promotion. They haven't oh. specified what parts they want to use or how many minutes they want. I'm guessing they want the entire thing. My question is, where do I even start with pricing or licensing terms? Okay, so this is something we dealt with early in our career as well. Um, it is something that if you are a creator and you own the footage you're making, that it's possible people reach out to you for licensing. When it comes to standard rates, this, in my experience from selling, is the least standardized form of, you know, transactions that I've ever seen. I mean, think about it. They want your specific piece of footage, yeah. there's going to be a spectrum of how bad they really need it right. or want it. We right. have no idea where it fits into their story. Yeah. And they're not going to tell you and reveal their hand sure. how badly they really want your footage. Exactly. And, you know, so first of all, I want to say for all creators, licensing is something that you should always think about when it comes to how clean your content is. Meaning, do you have the rights to film this thing? You know, do you have permits to film this thing? Is this footage 100% yours? Because the opportunity does come where people might want to license it. And that's going to come more and more in the future. So now, ABC is a massive company. If they really want this footage, they will be willing to pay a lot of money, especially because it's in perpetuity. In perpetuity, for people who don't know, means forever. It's a fancy way of just saying they own it forever. They can do whatever they want with it forever. Um, they also want it all media worldwide. That means they could, if they want, play it in a movie. They could play it on TV. They can play it on the internet. They can play it on TikTok. They can play it in any type of media that they want. That also means they could potentially use it um, in other shows. 
Now, what they're talking about is in-context advertising. So if they pay money to promote this show, your drone shop might be in that as well, but only in the context of this show. So I would get really clear on, on all of that. But with all of that, just basically think about you are selling them a drone footage that they could use forever for the rest of time in, in multiple different ways. So the best way to do this is to start write, writing down prices and feeling your gut reaction to them. So let me just say a few to you specifically, Lisa and Josh, YT. Um, how does $10,000 sound? Does that feel like it's representative of that? That's what I, outside looking in, would have started with. Sure. How does $20,000 sound? Does that feel uncomfortable for you? How Sounds does, great to me. How does $50,000 sound? Sounds like a lot. So let's start then. Let's start with 20. Go to them with 20. It's a 45-minute clip, which is really long. Maybe go with 30. Go to them with 30 and then see how they react. Well, also, it's your assumption. It's their assumption that it's 45 minutes that they want. Sure. So it that's could another be, thing you have to clarify. It could be 30 seconds. Yeah, if they yeah. want 45 minutes, that's yeah. going to be way more expensive. That's way more expensive. Than, than 12 seconds. Yeah. There's a lot of people who license by the minute. Um, when we used to purchase content for documentaries and stuff, it was typically around $1,000 a minute. Um, and so that's where somewhere you can go to, right? You yeah, we used say. to have to purchase clips from ESPN yeah. of college lacrosse and games. They, they licensed at 1000 plus per minute. So think about that. <laughs> you could also start there. So here's the thing about pricing, and this goes for any creator. Like sometimes some of this stuff has to do with an amount of time and expertise that, that you've put in over the years. Like if someone wants to buy something from Colin and I, we're not just thinking about that specific item. We're thinking about the 10 plus years of time and expertise that we have, that we've put in to get us to the, this point. So don't just think about your pricing as a one-off you know, purchase. If someone wants a consulting hour from us, is it an hour of time or are they buying 10 years of expertise? In my opinion, they're buying 10 years of expertise boiled down into an hour, you know? So that's, that's a really important for you to think about. It's like, are you went out and got this drone shot that they want and it's your expertise that went out to go get it. I also think for other creators who are experiencing this type of thing, if you are in the footage, then in my opinion, that gets to a whole nother level in terms of pricing. Big time. Cause right? that's name, image, and likeness. Yeah, yeah. Cause then it's like your name, image, and likeness that can show up in a commercial. Yep. And then that depends on how big is your distribution. Mm -hmm. Are you a creator with a million subscribers and 200,000 average views per video or something? And like people really know your name and it matters that it's you in that footage, mm -hmm. then the price definitely goes up and you should like have support yeah. When it comes to negotiating those rates and especially when it comes to perpetuity and if it's your sure. name, image and likeness, that's something you want to take really seriously. Agreed. So, you know, go based off of what we just said, but also talk to other people and get some advice. You can talk to a lawyer. You're going to have to pay them uh, if they get involved in this, but talk to different people, get some help, but start writing down some prices and feel how it feels for you. All right. This is from Kaulisa on Reddit. This is a gripe with us. Vlogging never died. Colin and Samir keep saying that vlogging is back, seemingly since the Penny series and Casey Neistat's return to YouTube, but when did it supposedly go away? I have personally followed tons of vloggers since the beginning of COVID, as it gave rise to many people documenting the mundane and creating something out of their loneliness during lockdown. People like Michelle Choi, Peter Lind Lindgren, uh, Yura Jung, spring to mind, but I'd also argue that Emma Chamberlain's videos are vlogs. Is this something... They consider highly cinematic vlogs to be on the rise again, or am I missing something? 
I think this is a really good point. I agree vlogging never died because in my opinion, vlogging is just a filmmaking format. Right. Right. Even the Penny series is a style. It's a filmmaking style that was used to, you know, get across a more idea-based style of content. Mm -hmm. I think what maybe not necessarily died, but took a back seat was just the age of relationship-based creators. The, the, the days of people like Emma Chamberlain having videos that are titled, you definitely caught me making soup, mm -hmm. right? That's very specific. You have to like Emma Chamberlain to click on that video. That's not something that is going to get swept up in the algorithm. Yeah. If you go back to Casey Neistat vlogging days, the YouTube meta, what was succeeding the most was the daily vlog. Yeah. Personal stories about people's lives. And so what happened obviously was there was a shift as Mr. Beast became the most prominent creator and, you know, the idea-based challenge format became the premier YouTube style and it became the YouTube meta. And I think what we're saying now is that that might be reversing where mm -hmm. it's going to be the relationship with the creators, the vulnerability of the creator uh, and the community they're building that becomes the premier style that even YouTube is pushing out. Yeah, agreed. I think the thing is, um, it never died. It's always been there, but it's just about what the, the general, like if people are talking about the world of creators right now, they're talking about Mr. Beast and Iraq. Um, you know, they're talking about people who are doing these, these big challenges. Even you look at, um, we saw Zach King, Zach King, who's like a YouTube magician. You've definitely seen his work. Um, but he does these like kind of magical editing things that, that are like illusions, even he recently just put out a video that was last to leave the island wins $150,000. Like that is directly from Mr. Beast. Um, and that's dire directly a part of this meta that we're in of these challenge-based creators. So that's kind of what we're suggesting is that the way that people are, are, are kind of exploding on YouTube and the conversation around which creators are making it, um, people aren't highlighting vloggers. People aren't highlighting people who are just covering their daily lives. But our perspective is that actually that's going to be the thing that is most craved after this crop of creators kind of as the pendulum shifts back. Um, and I think actually podcasting is an example of that, that, that desire to connect with authenticity. Podcasting, streaming is another version of that. And vlogging, I think those three styles of content, those storytelling mechanisms will start to be on the rise. And we interviewed um, a vlogger in New York, a lifestyle vlogger named um, Ashley Alexander, otherwise known as Your Mom Ashley, a part of the Your Mom's House, you know, formerly a part of Your Mom's House, which was a content house in New York. Um, she said something really impactful in that podcast that I, that I really enjoyed um, that you guys will hear in the coming weeks. But one thing she talked about was like, you can't just kind of come out the gates vlogging about your life. No one is interested you, you can use the vlog to talk about something that people are interested in. And then over time, you have to earn the right to just kind of talk about yourself as the subject. And I really liked that framing that like, cause you and I, we tried to vlog. We tried to vlog about ourselves on a YouTube channel. Didn't really work. No. Um, but using the vlog to cover something is really interesting. And that's kind of what we did. If you look at one of the first videos we made that kind of popped a little bit was the Beam video. We made a video about Casey Neistat's company Beam, and we used the vlog as a tool to tell a story about something that other people were interested in. Yeah. But I think that people are going to start to just get interested in human beings, their perspectives, 
their authentic reality and life. And I think we're seeing that through streaming and podcasting. Yep. And I think that point that Ashley made holds true for almost any relationship-based creator that you see today. I'm looking at Kelly Stamp's channel right now, and I just, you know, clicked sort by most popular. Her most popular videos, if you just look at them right now, growing your YouTube channel with zero subscribers. Right. That's something that has mass interest. How I save money at 23. Mm -hmm. Everything I own as a minimalist. Right. Like these are concepts that are mass. Yep. That a lot of people would be interested in. And that allows her to then upload, you know, her more recent videos right now, Autumn in New York, three weeks ago, right? Like you have to release those mass hits, gain that audience that way, and then you earn the trust. Mm -hmm. Okay. So question for you. Another thing about, you know, the vlogging format is getting comfortable, you know, speaking to a lens. We vlogged our New York trip, which was very fun. Vlogger Samir is back, everybody back for another vlog. Wow. And I got a ton of vlog ideas, guys. Vlogs are going to be coming on the Samir and Colin channel. So stay tuned. Keep your eyes peeled to the Samir and Colin channel because vlogs are coming. But I have a question for you, Colin. This is a, this is a big segue to ask you about improv class. Okay. You did improv for the first time last night. I did. How was it? I mean, it was just a delight. It was, uh, you know what? I was kind of uh, intimidated. I was tired because... We were in New York City yesterday morning. Yep. And then I had improv from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah. But it was such a comfortable setting. Mm -hmm. It was the first thing we sort of did was get okay with failure. Mm. We played this name game where if you get it wrong and you don't remember someone's name, you just put your hands up and you say, I failed, Mm -hmm. and you take a bow. And then the entire class has to applaud for you. Right. And- that just reinforces that failure is completely okay. And that's something that we get to do throughout the entirety of this class. Um, And it just made it a really safe space. Mm -hmm. And my teacher said something really interesting. She said, improv and learning improv is not about, it's not additive to your life. It's actually about subtracting some of the barriers that you build up, Mm. just moving throughout the world of feeling like you're nervous when you speak to someone. Yeah. You can't just have a free-flowing conversation sometimes. You're afraid to get up and do public speaking. These are barriers that we've built up. Mm-hmm. And improv is about just subtracting those barriers. So That's awesome. I feel like that concept of failure as well as presence, that's the thing that improv, my first improv class taught me a lot was, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but the amount of control that I was unaware that I required in most settings where, you know, you're sitting and you, you, you did that, the, the game Three-Headed Monster, right? Where you have to tell a story with, th- with two other people. I remember the first time I played that game, I was sitting and I, the premise was kind of thrown out. And I was like, oh, I know exactly where this should go. I got it. This is so good. This is so good. I, I'm going to steer this ship in the great direction. Like you two are going to come along with me. I got this. I'm going to produce the hell out of this moment, mm-hmm. right? And then all of a sudden the other two people are just saying stuff that's like completely contrarian to where I wanted to go and throwing me off track. And I was like, what are you guys doing? Stop it. Stop it. Hold on. I know where this should go. And then I learned in that day one of improv, I was like, oh, I just have to work with whatever, I have to be so present and not thinking about where I need this to go that I just have to work within the bounds of the gifts that these people are giving. Yeah, you can't try and be funny is something I learned last night. You just kind of have to be collaborative and supportive to whatever the people around you are doing. And hopefully at times last night, granted it's just my first class, but 
you know, what I realized was that if you're just are supportive of your teammates yeah. and the people you're with, at some point you're going to hit and what you will come up with is funny, but you couldn't have planned it. I think one of the interesting things is that improv is not about being funny. Improv is not comedy. Improv is being present and, you know, exploring this like bounds of whatever someone's throwing at you and reacting to it. It ends up being funny, but the concept of improv, there's so many, as you go through this next six weeks, there's so many scenarios that are just not going to be funny, Yeah, but you're going to stand up there and do scenes and they're going to be interesting. They're going to lead you to different places, but they're not going to be funny. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's not what improv is. It just, it, it ends up being funny if it's contextually funny, but I think that's like one of the most interesting things is that as creators to bring this back, the reason why we talk about improv so much is because that's what you're doing, especially as a podcaster. We're sitting and having a conversation where the other person's saying something that we don't expect. We don't know what they're going to say. And then we have to be so present to make sure we're, you know, working with what they just said to guide the conversation. But we don't know what they're going to say. I don't even know what you're going to say next. Yeah. You didn't know I was going to say, yeah, no, right there. I, I had no idea. But you did. Maybe it. I would have said no. It's possible. Who knows where that would have taken possible. you? Possible. Yeah. But I feel like I, I would hope that the concept of, um, you know, YouTube and failure within YouTube becomes more, you know, present and, and prominent. The nature of failing on YouTube is like, feels like it's not positive. It's really scary to fail on YouTube and to fail as a creator. It's terrifying. I think for me too, you know, last night at Improv reinforced that what we were doing in there was not serious. It was just fun. You know, right. my teacher said to me when we walked in, she said, no one comes here to make money. Right. Right. Sure. Some people come to YouTube and they're trying to make money, but there is a lot of it that at its core is about just having fun. Yeah. Like exploring this landscape, putting out your ideas and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. This question comes from Twitter. Totally new place, new destination to pull a question. Uh, comes from bootleg Bruce Lee. So I'm a small up and coming creator and I want to grow in the community. All the advice that I find is to find your niche and grow. But my question is, how do I find my niche? All I hear is it's something you like to do and all that. But I like a lot of things, basketball, anime, fashion, food, pranks, challenge videos, vlogs, podcasting. How do I break it down and work? I feel lost on finding my niche. Can you please help? I would say take to short form content because there's a low barrier to entry. You can mm. put out a video every single day if you wanted to, put yeah. out multiple videos and just commit to posting every single day, trying to come up with an idea, putting something out, just talking to the camera. And, you know, it'll be a mix of finding out what do you really like talking about and what's starting to resonate, what's working, right? Mm -hmm. Take the pressure off. If you like all those different things, just start making a video every day. About all those different about things. About all those different things. Yeah. And see what starts to hit before you think about, you know, really committing to a YouTube channel and making long form videos, which is a heavier lift. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the big mistakes we made early on was our only outlet. This is also just a product of the time. There really wasn't, there was not TikTok, but our only outlet was to make a long form YouTube video. Yeah. So we didn't have, you know, if we spent two to three weeks making a food review video and then it doesn't go well and we actually didn't like it, all of a sudden we need to take another two to three weeks to find out the next thing that we like or don't like. Yeah. Pace of creation, I think, is really important so that you can find your format that you really like. Um, and I think that actually happens even once you've found your format. Like for us right now, 
we've found our, our niche and our format stuff that we're authentically passionate about that we like to tell stories about. But from a format perspective, we are right now evaluating what it's supposed to look like on YouTube. You know, the back half of this year has been primarily interviews with creators, but there's also another version of the show that's just Colin and I. And I think that's been a challenge to figure out how does that fit in? You know, how does this audio only version fit in? And starting to recognize we are experimenting with a lot of different formats right now. We have our creator merch series. We have this audio only series. We have a newsletter. We have, you know, interviews. Let alone look look at our last three uploads right now. It's a long form interview. Right. It's a studio tour and it's essentially a vlog, you and I in the car talking about mm-hmm. hitting a million subscribers. Those are our last three videos. Right. They're entirely different when it comes to format. Yeah. The length is completely different, but the value prop and the audience that we have in mind is the same. Yeah. But I think as we go into 2022, you know, just to kind of, you know, give, give some solace to people who are starting out trying to find their format and trying to find their niche it's, it's a process you go through constantly. Like we are now 2023 might look different for us as we continue to discover who we are on the platform, even at a million subscribers with a fully, you know, developed business, we're still evaluating our formats and trying to figure out what feels right for us. And I think our goal is to allow ourselves to release enough content to learn, you know, release enough content to fail, release enough content to feel like what, what fits right for us. Um, so I think that's, that's the advice for finding your niche is, is now just do the work, just make content about all those different subjects you want to make content about and find which one feels right. All right. Here's another question. This one's from the subreddit title is batching content is great. Dot, dot, dot. Until you realize that OBS didn't record your audio. So right there, that's a unfortunate scenario where the audio wasn't recorded for this person's video. And it goes on to read, what's the biggest mistake you made on a video and how do you avoid repeating the mistake? I don't even know. Is it like, I mean, we used to always film and forget to record audio that happened all the time. Uh, outside of that, I don't even know what, what a massive like irreversible mistake has been. Matt Diavella has a story about the first day he got hired on a reality TV show. Um, this is a great story. <laughs> he, uh, he was really nervous. He moved to LA, wanted to be a cinematographer, um, got hired on a reality TV show to shoot. Um, and the part of the requirement was that he had to know how to use a red camera. So he said, yeah, of course I know how to use a red camera. That's like a standard rule in Hollywood. If you, if there's anything that people ask you, do you know how to do this? You just say yes. And then you figure it out. So like, do you know how to rollerblade? There's a lot of actors who've talked about, like they just say yes. And then they learn how to rollerblade. Uh, so Matt Diavella said he knew how to use a red camera, got to set, um, didn't know how to use a red camera. They just kind of set him up and we're like, all right, just don't miss anything. Eight hour day. Didn't record a thing. Totally, for, totally didn't know how to press record. Mm. Got fired and never did a job like that. Again. <laughs> it's a great story. He tells it on his podcast. Um, but you know, there's been, there's, there's some massive mistakes that have been made. I feel like for us, our mistakes and they're not massive mistakes, but we've, we've, had breakdown videos where some of our details are wrong or some of our stats are wrong. And people call us out in the comments and sometimes people are kind of offended. But sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. I can't think of like a big moment like that. I don't know. I mean, I feel like everything that we've done, you can always figure out. Like if you don't record audio, you can do voiceover. Eric, this is another great one. Eric for his bodyguard video. The audio didn't work at all and he fully dubbed that video. Fully dubbed it, 
watched the clip and spoke into a mic to match his lips moving. That video is fully dubbed. That's a story he told on our podcast. That's crazy. So, I, you know, no matter what, there's a way to solve it. Sometimes it sucks to solve it, but you can solve it. All right, here we go. This comes from Otis Arthur. Is anyone here a YouTube producer, creative director, channel manager, or YouTube strategist? I'd love to learn more about what these jobs entail. As the creator economy grows, there are going to be more and more career paths being forged. You may have also seen ytjobs.co blowing up lately with names including Patty Galloway behind it. As someone who loves the creator economy and has several years experience in broadcast TV, I feel like I could I have something to offer, but I don't truly know what these roles look like. If anyone has experience, I'd love to hear more. Those are some pretty different roles. Those are YouTube producer yeah. versus creative director versus mm-hmm. channel manager versus YouTube strategist. Yeah. So... Okay. First and foremost, in terms of like getting jobs, we wrote a series on this in the published press. You can find it in the archives, um, which is at news.publishpress.com. And there's a section in every published press pretty yeah, much about creative called creator moves, moves, creator moves that yeah. lists mm-hmm. different job openings. And as is in this yeah. post, there's now ytjobs.co. Okay. So in terms of YouTube producer, a YouTube producer is going to be just like any other producer. Your job is to look at the type of content that gets made and ensure that that content gets made up to quality on the right deadline. So for us, for example, let's look at our interviews. If you are working with us as a YouTube producer, we would ask you to book guests, pitch us guests, and um, keep a production schedule to ensure that we get out our content on a weekly basis or whatever schedule that we've set forward. After we shoot the content, your job would be to then organize that content and pass it out to different editors that we have on staff and ensure that it's tracking to meet the deadlines. So I would say a producer is a producer is a producer. If you're going to produce, you know, content for us, it's going to look different from if you're producing for Eric or Mr. Beast or for TV. But typically as a YouTube producer, you're probably going to have to wear a ton of hats. You're going to have to be really plugged into what the creative looks like, and you're going to have to manage schedules uh, and manage editors to make sure that the content is hitting deadlines. Now, when it comes to creative director, I would say that's a role that not too many creators actually have. Uh, unless they're at a much bigger scale. I know like MKBHD has a creative director mm-hmm. and that really comes Rhett down. And Link. Rhett and Link have a chief creative officer in Stevie. Yeah. Here's how she started. Like in terms of creative director or chief creative officer, that's typically when someone needs to scale their vision. So for example, Colin and I, you know, I was just having coffee with a friend this morning and she could not believe that Colin and I still are, you know, watching sometimes raw edits and cutting down content because we have a creative direction that's really been challenging for us to scale and explain. And that is the role of a creative director or a chief creative officer to essentially make sure that everything you shot and everything you make falls into the creative rules that, you know, you'd like to follow. And I think one of the hardest things is actually developing those rules of like, here's what the brand looks like. Here's the type of angle we always cover. Here's what the creative looks like. Here's how we do lower thirds. Here's how the videos should look to maintain consistency for people to know that this is a Colin and Samir video. Because also many times for the creator, it's intuitive and not something they're deliberately trying to do. Yep. So really a great creative director is someone who can see that, share Mm -hmm. some of that vision and be able to replicate almost the intuitiveness of the creator. So Yep, and communicate it. Communicate it. If, if you have freelancers that are working with you, they should have a brand book that's like, here's what a Colin and Tamir video looks like. We like subtitles to yeah, look like this. Exactly. You know, this is the type of color we would use here. The shot would look like that. So maintain like the creative integrity of every single piece. Channel manager. 
Channel manager is going to, you know, look at the high level of a channel and likely launch new channels for you. So for example, right now we're figuring out and very excited about this prospect of launching a highlights channel. So taking our, our videos and cutting them down to, you know, seven minute clips, like inter our interview with Ludwig and can we get, you know, 10, seven minute clips out of that, um, that we can put out and title and thumbnail them and you know, whatnot. So this is like a role that Logan Paul has with impulsive. Um, you know, there's the impulsive channel there's a channel manager for that who uploads the content, does the, make sure the thumbnails are there. Um, you know, make sure the advertising is placed in there, responds to comments, deals with the distribution platform that is the channel. And then, you know, also he has a channel manager for highlights who selects the highlights from the podcast, cuts them, uploads them, thumbnails them, titles them, puts the descriptions in, the metadata, um, responds to comments, you know, keeps that channel really active. So that's what a channel manager is. You're essentially running the page of, you know, the channel. Yeah, and then the last one, YouTube strategist, is someone who's much more involved in the direction of the actual content. Mm -hmm. So potentially pitching new content series, like for us, if you look at, you know, creator merch or studio tours, coming up with that idea and then making, you know, the decision or making the case to us that that's something we should keep doing. Hey, you should make more of these creator merch videos. They're doing well. The community seems to like it. You should make more of these studio tours. And how do you improve on it? Mm -hmm. So likely a YouTube strategist is going to be reading retention graphs, uh, is going to say, hey, when we did that interview, people are leaving at this timestamp because you placed the ad there. Why don't we try placing the ad over here? You know, and also thinking about titles and thumbnails for the future. I think that's the biggest role of a YouTube strategist is to think about packaging titles and thumbnails that are going to work with your brand as well as drive click-through rate from your audience. I feel like that was a pretty good breakdown of those roles. You should mm -hmm. probably write that up somewhere. Yeah. You know, like a matrix of what these different roles do. I feel like that was pretty good. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. I didn't really think about it until they were listed here in this Reddit thread. So. Yeah. And we can really like divide those up and explain those roles. Okay. The last thing I want to talk about is Markiplier just real quick. If you haven't seen this. So Markiplier basically challenged his audience to make his podcast, the number one podcast. And if they did that, then he would launch an OnlyFans. This happened. He became the number one podcast above Joe Rogan. I think that just speaks to, you know, when you launch something, there should be a story to how you launch it. Yep. And what you do and, and a call to action. He's basically just that idea in itself was memeable, right? Or yep. it was remarkable. It was worth talking about. It, it actually reminds me of the integration that Mr. Beast did for Shopify, mm. where that he was said fantastic. that he was selling socks. Yeah. And then you go to the link to buy the socks and all the socks are sold out. It wasn't even real. And it's actually just an ad for Shopify to get you to start your own store and go off on your own like entrepreneurial wait, wait, journey. Wait, 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 wait. Did you say the socks weren't real? Were they real and they just actually yeah, sold out? Yeah, they actually sold out. How many did they sell? That I don't know, but like we were on a text with with the Shopify team they, and they showed me the socks when we were oh, at really? Summit. Yeah, I those, thought it was just like immediately no, sold out. No, no, no. It just, it just sold out in two minutes, much quicker than they anticipated. Oh. But they sold socks. They sold them at cost. They sold them for like $10. Okay. But they sold socks and they sold out of socks. I think for me, what was really cool about that is like, they, like that was an advertisement that was showing the product. But the vision there, the understanding there was that most people were going to show up when it's already sold out. Yeah. And then sure. the, the, 
feeling then is go start your own. Right. Right. Like yeah, it was exactly. not about selling and making money from socks. No, not at all. Any means. No, no, that, that, that was marketing, but it was, it was fantastic that they showed you how Shopify works through mm-hmm. that ad. But yeah, I think you have to think about what people are going to um, say about your thing beyond, you know, just the thing itself. Um, so like, what is the headline? So Markiplier is launching a podcast is not an interesting headline at all. Markiplier is launching an OnlyFans. That's an interesting headline. Now, what's the sub subline of that? It's going to be Markiplier is launching an OnlyFans if his fans can make his podcast the number one podcast in the world. Now you're like, Markiplier has a podcast? So like that is a much more interesting hook than Markiplier is launching yeah. a podcast. What's the story of the story? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you got a gripe? I'll uh, throw top. a gripe out. Okay. All right. So on the plane ride back yesterday, I get to my seat. Typically, you and I are sitting next to each other, which is nice because we'll just kind of talk for a little bit and then just won't talk on the plane. And that's acceptable. But yesterday, when I got to my seat, I was, you know, surprised to see it wasn't you next to me. Okay. It was FaZe Swag, who's a member of the FaZe Clan. Okay. Now, let me just say this real quick. Absolutely lovely individual. Had an amazing conversation with him as we sat down. Talked about life, talked about creators, talked about what he was doing in New York, talked about FaZe Clan, loved talking to FaZe Swag. Very lovely individual. I just thought it was really cool he was decked out in FaZe gear. Yeah, that was dope. Look, he looked now, like a professional athlete. I mean, he is, I guess, with a gamer. Here's but. the gripe. When you sit next to someone who you moderately know or start talking to on the plane, there's no defined lines of when you stop talking, how you should interact during the plane ride, how you should say goodbye to each other. And I felt a lot of just confusion around certain things. Like when I started watching the Elvis movie, should I turn to him and be like, I'm watching Elvis? Does he, you know, or, <laughs> or is that not, are we done speaking? I mean, you know, I was right to the left of you guys. I yeah. think you're done at that point. He had his headphones on. Right. He, he put wanted his to be on. in his own world. Well, I would say that I probably pulled a weird move because we were in the middle of a conversation and then my wife called and I didn't say, hey, my wife is calling. I just put in my headphones and started talking to her oh. in the middle of our conversation. And then I was like, oh God, I just, you know, had that been you, no problem. It's whatever. Mm. But now I'm in a new relationship with this, you know, with Faye Swag next to me. And is that how conversation died? That's how conversation died. And it occasionally picked up, you know, we both slept and then we both woke up at the, at the same time, which was weird. And I didn't know if we should say like, Hey, how'd you sleep? I didn't. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. yeah. So it was, that's a gripe for me. It's like sitting next to someone you, you kind of know, or just strike up a conversation with and not knowing when or what the rules are of that conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of creator support. We'll see you next week. 